Good morning, again. I am Doug, and I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I also get the privilege of ending a series that we're calling Hard Feelings. This is part four, and we are going to look today at the emotion of sadness. I dressed accordingly last week with a red shirt with anger, and sadness is closely associated with blue, so voila, here you have it, singing the blues, so to speak. You know, we can realize, if you've lived at any time length at all, you know that sadness is an emotion that never entirely leaves the room. It's always with us. It might be hidden. It might not be the focus, main focus at the moment, but sadness never escapes from being with us. And it's kind of ironic that this is the emotion that God would have us look at just days following Thanksgiving. And I do hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving day family and friends. I have heard it said last week, I did not fact check it, so I I put that asterisk out there, that on Thanksgiving Day, the average consumption of adult adult calories is 4,500. Are you feeling average? No. All right. It's such a talking point. This is good. This is good. We certainly have lots to be thankful for, and I do hope and pray that you are in a lifestyle of not just on Thanksgiving, of giving a time to reflect of God's goodness, but I do hope that you did that on that day, and do it again today and and every day. And yet, despite all that is good in life, and all that we have to be thankful for, sadness is still very much part of everyday life. There was an article that I came across, I think it was some four years ago, that I think puts this into pretty good perspective. It's almost like a poem, and and I want to read it to you this morning. It says, I am thankful for the wife who says it's hot dogs tonight because she is home with me and not out with someone else. For the husband who who is on the sofa being a couch potato because he is home with me and not out at the bars. For the teenager who's complaining about doing the dishes Because it means he or she is at home and not on the streets. For the taxes I pay, because it means I am employed. For the mess to clean after a party, because it means I have been surrounded by friends. For the clothes that fit a little too snug, because it means that I have enough to eat. For my shadow that watches me work, because it means I am out in the sunshine. For the lawn that needs mowing, windows that need cleaning, and gutters that need fixing, because it means I have a home. For all the complaining I hear about the government, because it means we have freedom of speech. For the parking spot I find at the far end of the parking lot, because it means I am capable of walking and I have been blessed with transportation. For my huge air conditioning bills. We haven't turned on the heat yet, right, at the house? For my huge air conditioning bills, because it means I am cool and comfortable. For the lady behind me in the church who sings off key, don't turn around and look, (laughs) because it means I can hear. For the pile of laundry and ironing, because it means I have clothes to wear. For weariness and aching muscles at the end of the day, because it means I am capable of working hard. 
for the alarm that goes off in the early morning hours because it means I am alive. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? And yet, as I was reading through this article again, I realized that there are undertones of sadness with each statement that was given. The sad reality that not all wives are at home, but some are out in inappropriate ways. The sad reality that not all husbands are home, but are out in dangerous places destroying their life and the lives of their family. The sad reality that there are many teenagers and children of all ages out on the streets. Sad reality of unemployment and homelessness and poverty and starvation that exists throughout the world. The sad reality of physical imperities, health issues of all sorts that cause such pains and such discomforts. And the sad reality of death. Not everyone who set their alarm clock last night woke up to hear it. And that will happen again tonight, and the next night, and the next. Sadness is that hard emotion that is part of life, and no one who is alive and breathing can escape from it. No one is exempt from being affected by sadness. And try as we do, People try to avoid anything and everything instead of being sad. Society wants nothing to do with sadness. It tries to drown out sorrows and sadness. We all do it. Sadly, some do it with extremely dangerous things like substance abuse and alcohol. But oh, we are really good at also trying to do it with busyness, music, therapist, medication. If it makes me sad, it must be bad. It's kind of the theme of the day. I mean, really. How many of you would prefer, prefer a happy day over a sad day? Anyone, all of those of us in here who would prefer a happy day over a sad day, say happy. happy. It sounded predominantly yes. And those who prefer sad day, say sad Really? I have in my notes to say, that's really weird. But yeah, it's weird to say sad. It's weird to say things like, I take a sad day over a happy day. Of course, if it makes me sad, it must be bad. That's the right way to think. Unless, unless you believe the Bible to be true when it contradicts maxims that the world uses. Take, for example, this verse from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. What? It's better to go to a house of sadness than to a house of happiness? Because the destiny of my life and all of mankind ends with death? And the living should take it to heart. When it comes to the Bible, if you are new to the Bible, if you've been around the Bible a long time, expect it to be very, 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 and a lot more varies opposite of what it's going to say compared to what society says. Society will say, live it up, party on, eat, drink, and be merry. This is as good as it gets. Bible says, go to funerals. Consider your life 
and what the future holds for your soul. That's about as opposite as it gets to the way of the Bible's thinking and the way that people, human beings, think. And why is that as the norm? 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The unbeliever doesn't care about what God has to say in the Bible. The unbeliever doesn't ask God's Spirit for help. The unbeliever thinks that the teachings from the Bible are often stupid, absurd, waste of time, out of reality. And the reason the person thinks this way is because the Bible says here, this verse says that they are spiritually dead or they're not able to evaluate spiritual things. They can't understand it. I'm wondering, as I was reading through those verses again, do you remember a time in your life when you were like that? And what happened? How was it that you were once unable and uninterested in understanding the things of the Bible? You thought they were boring or dumb. And now, a lot of you are here for the very set purpose of, I want to know the Word of God. I want to hear it. I'm hungry for it. What happened? Well, to put it in the language that the Bible uses, I want us to see Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in disobedience. That's the devil. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, and that's the biggest and the best but in the entire universe, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You, my friend, are saved by grace. For by, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Let me give you an alert. That is the most important thing that is going to be said today in this sermon. Matter of fact, that's the most important thing that could ever be said any day, at any time. And if you are here today as an unbeliever, I am so glad that you are here today because you get to hear how others in this room were once unbelievers, but by God's grace, though not deserved, saved by God, being rich in mercy, saved us, he loved us, and we get this through faith in Jesus Christ. And you too can have this gift from God. So I say, oh yes, I am glad that you are here today. And that's the same lens, that's the same idea that we need to look at and when we look at this feeling of sadness. We need to look at it through the lens or the binoculars of the gospel. The three big words that the Bible uses for sadness are sad, sorrow, and grief. Here's Psalm 90.10. It gives a summary of life, what life is like when it comes to sadness. Our lives last 70 years or for strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Yeah, you get 70 years, maybe 80 if you're strong. Sometimes it's less than that. 
Or maybe you're, the rare, you're going to be the rare exception of the Filipino lady who died this past week, who was thought to be the oldest person in the world. Did you know she died this week? 124 years old. Wow. If she knows Jesus, she is. But regardless of the number of years you get, and though they go by incredibly fast, I'm convinced they go faster the older you get. Truth. It is going to be struggle and sorrow. It's a life full of sadness, pain, and disappointment. And then it's over. And you may be thinking, man, I'm not quite sure why I came this morning. <laughs> well, the topic is sadness. But the reason that sadness is so painful is because all sadness, all sadness exists because it is either directly or indirectly the result of sin, our greatest problem. Do you realize that there was no such thing as grief or disappointment or sorrow until after sin came into the world? Shortly after Adam and Eve came, sadness came into existence for human beings. Yet it's also important that we establish the fact, just like we have done with the other emotions that we've looked at over the past few weeks, of worry, shame, and anger, sadness in and of itself is not a sin. This is a huge concept for us to understand as we are continually building upon our biblical worldview. So how are we going to live? This idea of emotions being used positively or negatively, being used righteously or unrighteously. It's been a point of emphasis. It's been highlighted each and every week that we have been in this series. From the Bible, we have seen that worry can be an appropriate concern, but it can also be a lack of faith in God. From shame, we saw that it can be healthy, but it can also be toxic. Anger, last week, anger can be righteous, can be unrighteous. And now week four, sadness. Sadness can be godly and it can be ungodly, worldly. And that's our jumping in point for us this week on what the Bible wants us to know about sadness. And here's an outline for us today. And then I need to give an explanation about the outline. Sadness is leading you one place or another. Sadness is best managed following the strategies of the Bible. Asterisk. Sadness is on the clock. It's not going to last forever. Asterisk. And the reason I need to give an explanation is because, well, you're only going to get point one today. As I was studying and preparing for this week, I realize that the second and the third points are their own sermons in themselves. Unless you want to go for three, you get one point today. We're going to do that. But um, I was in this little dilemma, and so I reached out to Mario, who, by the way, is on vacation. He really does still come around here. Um, and he'll be back next week, so if you're visiting, please come back, and everyone come back. I reached out to Mario and said, Mario, I only... 
uh, I, I'm real concerned. These points, they're like all their own messages. How about we do this? I said, I'd like to preach point one and then send out an email with information from the Bible about how we can live with sadness and kind of manage sadness in a godly way. And oh, I really want to tell people about sadness. It's on the clock. It's not going to last forever. I've had tons of conversations just this morning talking with people about hard things going on in their life. And I just want to say to everybody, it's on the clock. Sadness is on the clock. It's not always going to be this way. Jesus is going to fix everything. And I want to put all that in an email. So if I don't have your email address and church does it, and you want this, make sure we get it. You can fill out a connection card, stick it in the boxes in the back, and we'll get it to you. And I'm excited about doing that as well. But today, it is sadness is leading you to one place or another. Can I have that next chart? There we go. It's leading us to one place or another. A theme verse for us is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to read it, mark it all up, look at it. If you don't, it's up here on the screen for us. I rejoice, not because you were grieved, sad, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul was writing a letter to these people that caused them to be sad. And now he's writing another letter to them in response to this first previous letter. That's what we know. But for our purposes today, I want us to notice that there is a godly sadness. There's a godly grief that leads, that people experience, that leads to salvation. And that may seem a strange concept. As strange as saying it's better to go to funerals than to a party. It's strange to think that a sad thing in our life can lead to a good thing. And yet that's what we have God's word saying here. And so I want to say to all of us that it is a very loving thing and an incredible act of kindness and amazing grace for God to put sadness into our life and for us to experience sadness in a way that leads to salvation, that that's a very loving thing to do. And it's hard to think that way, that sadness can be something good from God. But also notice, as we add to the slide and from verse 10, that worldly sadness, worldly grief, is the opposite of godly sorrow. And it is also leading, but instead of leading to, to salvation and to spiritual life, it's leading to spiritual death. So the Bible talks about and says that there's a kind of sadness that leads people to salvation, and there's a kind of sadness that leads people to destruction, spiritual death. So sadness is leading everyone one place or another. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. It's probably, it is probably one of the most important questions you can ever be asked about sadness. And that is this. Where is the sadness that you are experiencing leading you? Because we all have sadness in our life. And based on the Bible, there's two answers. Your sadness is either leading you to salvation or it is leading you to spiritual death. And the way that you can know which path, which journey you are traveling on, is by knowing what kind of sadness is going on. What are you feeling 
on these sad moments. Notice the verse again. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief produces repentance. And godly repentance leads to salvation. But worldly grief does not produce true repentance. It produces worldly repentance. There's a difference going on there. This worldly repentance leads to death, spiritual death. So the million-dollar question, so to speak, is this. What is godly sorrow? What is godly grief? And what is worldly sorrow? What is worldly grief? That's a big deal to know. Because if we are going to live these 70 or 80 years or whatever the number of years that God gives us on this earth, it's really important that we know the difference of these two types of grief and sadness. And it also determines, according to these verses, where we spend eternity. Godly sorrow looks like the second half of the prodigal son story in Luke 15. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not, but here it goes. I'm going to read it to you. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all, of his, all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were given, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will, set back, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's godly grief. Godly grief sees that there is a vertical problem with sin. I have sinned against God in heaven. Lots of places in the, verse, in the Bible, it says things similar to this. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. So, the sadness that we experience can be seen as godly grief when we see sin as much more than just being a sad thing. But godly grief sees sin as offensive to God. Godly grief is not nonchalant when it comes to repentance with God. It's not a que-sera-sera attitude of, oh, I broke your law again, God. So sorry, God. So gracious. You're so gracious to me, God. 
does not have that kind of approach. Godly grief displays a broken and a contrite spirit. It talks the way Puritans used to talk. It's described like this. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Godly grief is not casual. If our sadness is just only about ourselves and not about the sin that we may be involved in, sin around us, those are red flags for us. A godly grief also sees the horizontal problem with sin. Godly grief takes ownership of the sin without passing the blame. Without passing the blame to others. It doesn't blame parents. It doesn't blame children. It doesn't blame the spouse or the boss or the teacher or the government or the church or the circumstances of life. And when this kind of sadness is upon a person, the Bible says this person is ripe unto repentance. And that is huge for us to acknowledge. Look again at verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly grief produces repentance, which then leads to salvation. Notice, godly grief isn't repentance. It produces repentance. So let's complete the chart that we have right here. There is a vast difference between regret and repentance. Better said that there is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about sin. Repentance turns away from sin. And the difference is literally heaven and hell. But it seems so many people are just content with regret. People feel bad about themselves for a while. They'll even cry. They admit how selfish they are, how dumb, how stupid they are, how sorry they are, but they don't change. But repentant people, instead of being obsessed over regret, instead of feeling sorry for themselves, embarrassed by the opinions of others, repentant people turn from sin and find their forgiveness in Christ. That's exactly what the prodigal son did. Worldly grief is only sorry for getting caught in sin. Oh, I remember that day really, really well in my life. Worldly grief is sorry they have to live with the consequences of sin. Worldly grief is all self-centered. But the problem with worldly grief is it doesn't repent. It doesn't change. It tries to manipulate the situation to something else. Perhaps the best and saddest example of the person in the Bible of having a worldly grief and not a godly grief is Judas. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 and 4 tells us that Judas, he felt remorse for betraying Christ and that he had returned his 30 pieces of silver by which he was bribed and he even openly confessed, I have sinned. By betraying innocent blood. But ultimately, we see that his sorrow was not godly sorrow leading to repentance, but it was a worldly sorrow that only had regret and it produced death. Because when the chief priests and the elders wouldn't take the money back, verse 5 says that he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. 
and he went away and hanged himself. If Judas was mourning over the offense that he had committed against the Son of God, his response would have been a completely different outcome. When we think Judas spent three years living with Jesus. He knew of the forgiveness he needed. He knew that Jesus had come to die for sinners. But his grief was not that kind that led to repentance, but it was the kind that only led to regret. It only led to worldly grief. And that kind of grief is only self-centered and not God-centered. And there is a very strong consideration that we must make here, especially if you are someone who has grown up being around the church. Judas's actions are nearly indistinguishable from genuine godly repentance at this point. Look at this. He confessed his sin. He felt remorse over it, and he had seemingly changed his course. So the strong consideration is this. For the person who professes to be a Christian, for any person who has confessed their sin and has felt sadness for their sin, but does not change in mind or in way, could very well have the same kind of grief and sorrow that Judas had. That's a staggering consideration. And it is worth our full attention. Thank God that God's word gives us ways of knowing what kind of sorrow and sadness we are dealing with and how it leads us. Again, if we will look back to 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, there is a clear distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. And we find it in verse 11. I'll start in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. And then verse 11. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire you have to clear yourselves. What indignation you have. What fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourself to be pure in this matter. What's going on here? It's a description of what worldly grief looks like and what godly grief looks like. Worldly grief produces death because it's stagnant and it's idle and the person does not change. This person may regret things in their life, but there's no change. Godly grief pushes us to take action. It clears ourselves from sin. There's a change about us. Now there's an indignation. There's an angry, annoyed, being bothered by sin. And we do it with this great fear and respect of God. With deep longings, passionate longings, full of zeal for Jesus. That is the identifying marker in each person's life. If you are living in a way where God has given you godly grief that produces repentance and leads you to salvation, there is absolutely no regret. What verse 9 says. And it just means we have to ask the question as we end. Where is the sadness that you're experiencing in your life 
leading you? Where is it leading you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word and how it's alive and active. You use words that talk about it being sharp and penetrating to us right down through our bone marrow, right to our soul, and oh, we need that so badly. Father, we, we, we have to acknowledge and recognize that we live in a world of sadness, that in each and every one of our lives there is sad things going on. Not just sad things, but that it causes sadness in us. And it seems to be clear from your word, Father, that this kind of sadness that we deal with is either meant to draw us to you into the cross or that this sadness causes a type of regret or type of compromise or type of trying to, to uh, rationalize it or to speak it away, to blame others, maybe even to blame you. But ultimately your word says that this, if we act this way towards sadness, the emotion of sadness in our life, that it can result in spiritual death. And I know, Father, there's, there's a lot more easy, light-hearted topics to preach on. certainly seems like laughter and fun times is a much easier thing to, to preach or to live out. And yet here you have us looking directly at your word, saying, be still for a little bit. Consider funerals and death and the sadness that's associated with them because these are the very things that I want to use to draw people to myself. So Lord, I would ask that you would do that to the extent that it, your will be done for the unsaved that would be here and the saved that we would both all, that we would all be challenged and moved by your word. Father, do the miracle of us thinking and believing that even in sadness it is good and you desire for good to be the result for your people from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.